0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. The Jataka tales, or stories of the Buddha's previous lives as a Bodhisatta, have for centuries been a rich source of inspiration in Theravada Buddhism. In addition to the canonical Jataka, a number of other non-canonical Jataka tales emerged in Southeast Asia and were widely circulated throughout the region. Collections of these tales are conventionally referred to as the Panyasa Jataka, or the 50 Jataka. Once considered minor and apocryphal, the Panyasa Jataka are now recognized as the lifeblood of the region's literature and an important source of traditional culture. Dr. Chris Baker and Professor Pa Suk have translated 21 of the best-known tales from the Thai collection of the Panyasa Jataka in their recently published book, From the 50 Jataka, Selections from the Thai Panyasa Jataka, published by Silkworm Books in 2019. Please join us as we discuss their beautifully translated book, explore these fascinating Jataka Tills, and uncover the origins of some risque Thai tree names on today's podcast. Chris and Pasuk, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to speak with us today.
1: Thank you. Thank Thank you very much,
0: Alex. Now I'm sure that many people listening are very familiar with uh, the many publications that you've jointly published on Thai history, culture, economy, politics, and the list goes on. Um, but for those who are less familiar with your work, I'd like to ask you to present your academic background, and I think we're all interested in hearing as to why you were motivated to undertake an English translation of the Thai Panyasa Jataka.
2: Well, I'm a professor of political economy at the Faculty of Economics at Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok. And I have worked on issues of labor, corruption, illegal economy, inequality, tax reform. And I also read a lot of literature. And uh, the interest in this, uh, there is a little bit of a story. Both of us have translated an old Thai epic, which originated as and oral literature dating back to around 17th, 18th century. It's a tale of tragic love triangle with the hero known to be a very chauvinistic man. And at a seminar about something else at the faculty, at the university, there are two ladies who rushed to me and said, why did you translate the tale of Kumpan, that epic that I just mentioned? You must redeem yourself by translating Banyasa Jataka, and you will go to heaven.
0: <laughs> Interesting story.
2: <laughs> I heard a little bit about the Banyasa chataka. and I kind of laughed and said, I will think about it. So I, when I get home, I told Chris about this, and both of us had a good laugh. <laughs> so after that, Chris has uh, found that some professor in literature that we know quite well had done her PhD thesis exactly on this Banyasa Chataka. So he went and read it and, and came back and told me,
1: I'm I'm really a historian, and I've lived now in Thailand for almost 40 years. And I have uh, recently been working on the history of Ayutthaya, the the kingdom that was uh, of Siam, the main kingdom of Siam, from about the 13th century through to the 18th century. Um, And as part of that, I was looking for a lot of to read old literature as well as reading the historical sources. So I'd come across this Banyasa Jataka a little bit, and we had got to know this marvellous lady, Ajahn Niyada Lausundhorn, who Pasuk mentioned, who had, back in the 1970s, had written this wonderful book, Tracing It. So I went back to look at it, and then I thought, hmm, Uh, Maybe I shall look at some of the stories and and see if they're interesting. And at that time, I hadn't really thought that we should translate them. But then when I read a couple, I thought, oh, really, you know, these are really uh, very good and very fun stories, but also historically very interesting for a lot of reasons. They're clearly very much part of the popular culture of the time rather than the elite culture of the time. And when researching a history of something like old Siam, old Ayutthaya, it's very easy to get a view into the elite. It's much more difficult to get a view into the people under the ranks of the elite. So I was very interested to pursue it. And I, I guess at the beginning I had no idea that we would go and try and translate the whole thing. I was just thinking of uh, of dipping into it, and somehow you know just one thing uh, led. Led on to another, and I I just kept going. I suppose until.
2: I just like to add a little bit more. Well, when when I also when I also start to read uh, these theses and I realize that a lot of the stories I have known since my childhood day, but I'd known it, them as uh, uh, folk tales and it's a kind of folk tales uh, that has some didactic uh, uh, notion in it and i never realized that it has got anything to do with the life of the buddha and it makes me very curious on uh, how it is connected because my you know we know that there is this canonized uh, jataka about the life of the Buddha, which are very sacred and everything. But uh, a lot of these stories in the Panyasa Jataka are, are also kind of local tales that are told to children and are very well known all over Thailand. So I, I also became quite interested to learn more about it. And I know that uh, this Panyasa channel has Jataka had been printed uh many many times in in various uh, uh, publications in a very important kind of context so um i also became interested in to 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 get involved with Chris's project and want to go to heaven as well
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah true <laughs> now I believe that this is the first major publication in English of uh, such a large number of Panyasa Jataka tales in, in one publication. Is that correct?
1: No, the the collection from Burma, from Myanmar, was translated by I. B. Horner and P- Padmanab Jaini several years ago. I can't remember the exact date. It's back in the nineteen sixties, I think, and published by the Pali Text Society, but. I think it's not widely known, partly because it's a, a very academic kind of translation. It's not, very, it's not very comfortable to read, so I don't think it's become very, very popular.
0: And before we continue, uh, or, or before we get to the, the meat and bones of the discussion, I'd like you to present to our listeners a brief overview of the contents of your book, if you could.
1: Okay. The, the book is called From the 50 Jataka. And the the Banyasa Jataka, is Pali of meaning just fifty Jataka, and this title has become a conventional title for collections of Jataka stories that were written in Southeast Asia or collected in Southeast Asia, rather than in India. And there are collections of these stories in Cambodia, in Laos, in northern Thailand, in Lana, in and in Burma. Um, and they don't necessarily have 50 stories, um, but it's just become a conventional title. So what we have done is we, trans- we have translated as in this book. We've actually translated all of the 61 stories in the Thai collection, but we only put 21 in this book just for reasons of length. So the book has full translations of these 21 stories. It has an introduction, which explains the background and summarizes the current day scholarship about these stories. And then has a at the at the back summaries, sort of six to 10 line summaries of all 61 of the stories. And then it's got a few other things, glossaries and bibliographies and so on. But it's basically a selection of stories from this collection plus summaries of the total collection.
0: Mm. And are there any uh are there any plans to publish your other translations of the Jataka Tales that you did not present in this current publication?
1: Yes. I think eventually the, the problem was is that if we had if we published the whole lot, it would be over a thousand pages. Wow, okay. <laughs> and that would mean it would mean probably a three, but by the time you put footnotes and everything else in, it would be a a three-volume work. And actually, uh, many of the stories are quite repetitive, and and they're particularly towards the end of a collection, a lot of rather rambling and repetitive long stories. Um, And they are some interest to the specialist, but not so much, I think, to the general reader. So we decided that we would select. But the intention is eventually that we will publish the whole lot, probably in some kind of e-publication, but we haven't decided yet how.
0: Yeah. One of the features of your book that I think is very interesting is that you do provide this index of summaries of all the tells, even the ones not included in the book. Um, And not only is it useful to read through that and get an overview of the flavor of these texts, but it's also a great companion to reading the text as well to keep track of what's going on and to see where the plot's going and so forth. So that's one thing I really enjoyed about your about your book. Now, what precisely is a Jataka tale? I think uh, many of us have heard um, a, a number of tales now, and we know that it's generally about the Buddha's previous lives, but what is it more specifically?
1: The term has come to mean A a tale of one of the Buddha's previous lives, as told by himself, to his followers. And there is, of course, a very famous collection of 550 or 547 of these tales, which appears in the Pali Canon, in the the main books of, of the Buddhist scriptures. Um, and that is, has been very well known for a long time. Um, and, but, and these tales from a very early period in Buddhist history became, was recognized how useful they were for teaching. Because the, to- the stories of how he perfected himself as the Buddha are great examples, uh, didactic examples for teaching to other people. So these stories had started coming into Southeast Asia since uh, around the 6th or 7th century of, of, of the Common Era. And then sometime, uh, some people started to kind of mimic the format and write stories in the same form. And this is really not too difficult because by about the 5th or 6th century, the form had become very formalized. So you, you started off, with a pre-story, in which the followers of the Buddha come to him and say, "We have heard something about your greatness and and, and your goodness. Um, and how did this come about?" And at the end of this, they beg him to tell a story about one of his previous lives. And then it goes into a story. Um, and what this enables, in fact, is that all kinds of stories, which may have uh, originated somewhere else can be turned into a jataka story by making the central figure into a bodhisattva into a buddha to be so that many of the stories in this collection and of course many in the indian collection as well actually uh, were first composed or first put together uh, as local tales as folk tales and only later were translated into Jataka,
0: are there other aspects or a, a sort of archetypal form of a Jataka tale that we can speak of? So, for example, if someone were listening to a Jataka tale being recited, is are there clues that would let them know that that's what they're listening to?
1: Well, I think the main the, the main clue is that that it is the Buddha telling of his previous life. There are then other features which are are, are sort of not not you don't have to have them, but generally they do have them. One feature is that throughout the tale, there are segments that are told in verse, in the in, in original versions, which are usually didactic. They're usually summoning up the philosoph- philosophical meaning of this particular tale. And there's usually then an ending, which comes back then to the present day, where we started, and the Buddha uh, makes a summary where he makes connections between uh, the characters that have appeared in the story and the characters that are part of the story of the Buddha's life, of Gautama Buddha's life, meaning particularly his family and his uh, close disciples. So we learn that not only is this about the past life of the Buddha, it's about the past life of the people who are connected with Gautama Buddha as well.
0: And how do these Panyasa Jataka differ from the classical Jataka tales found in the Pali Canon?
1: Well, they they don't. In form, they don't at all. The difference is is that they appeared in Southeast Asia rather than appearing in India and being collected into the the scriptures of the
0: Pali Canon. All right. And so uh, about the origins... More specifically, are, were these all folk tales, or do they have diverse origins, or how did they come into being? In, and okay. um,
1: there, there is there is an old mythology that the whole collection of these stories, uh, as known in Southeast Asia, was compiled probably in Chiang, Chiang Mai in in Lana in northern Thailand, somewhere back around the 14th century, and you can find this tale told in many different sources. However, it's impossible to find, if if you like, a footnote for this tale. There's no no really good scriptural source of this tale. And it appears to be just one of those factoids that, because everyone repeats it, it tends to be true. It's much more likely that these tales were just passed around the, the region by storytellers, by monks, and by travelers, by merchants, and so on and so forth, and were gradually collected together uh, in collections of scriptures, in collections of manuscripts at different places around the region. And they may only have become a, uh, known as the 50 Jataka quite late in the time. The first references to this this title as 50 Jataka in different languages seems to be about the late 18th century. And even then, we don't know what was the content of that collection. And the first listing is is in the late 19th century. So it's probably much more recent that they were comp- sort of formalized as collections. Um, the, the, the collection that we used was put together in the 1920s by Prince Damrong Rattanupan, who was the half-brother of the great King Chulalongkorn Rama V of Siam. And Prince Damrong had been a great administrator in the late 19th century, one of the architects of the modern nation. And when he retired in the 1910s, he devoted himself to writing history and literature, and he's quite an extraordinary output of things that he did. But what he did is he assembled this collection of 61 stories, mostly out of manuscripts he found in the Bangkok Palace Library, but also from some others that he found in three of the major Buddhist temples in the city. And then he, and these were all in Bali, in the sacred language of Theravada Buddhism. And he had a group of translators who he had already been using to translate the Indian Jataka, the classical Jataka. And so he used, he employed them. To start translating these stories, and they were p- printed uh, in in in, edi- in in sort of a series that came out between 1924 and 1935, and then eventually were put together in a in, in a, into a com- into complete book. After that,
0: are there any other collections of the Panyasa Jataka available in Southeast Asia, or is this the only one where these stories have been compiled into one known volume?
1: No, there are several. I mean, the, the, the one that is probably best known is the one that is in Yangon, it's in Burma, um, because it was, as I said earlier, it was translated into English several decades ago. There is a collection in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh. Um, but that is clearly mostly just a, co- a copy of the Thai version, but an incomplete. It doesn't have quite as many stories, but it, they, they seem to be much the same. There's then uh, two copies which exist in northern Thailand, which exist in different wat, and uh, one of them has been published in in a Thai form. And then there's another which is in, in Laos as well. There are probably several more which just aren't so well known because. Uh, Although there has been a lot of investigation of manuscript collections in Buddhist temples over the last 20 years, it's still far from complete and people are still finding things like
0: this quite regularly. And do we know the motivation uh, as to why this original collection was originally um, brought together and translated?
2: Well, I think
1: I think that uh, Prince Damrong he he doesn't really explain. He only writes a very short uh, introduction, but he was intent. I mean, this time, early in the twentieth century, he and people around him in the court, the intellectuals in the court, were intent upon preserving whatever they could find of the old literature and the history and everything. So he was intent upon transcribing, publishing. And uh, 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 translating and everything, so I think it's just an act of pre- preservation. How the collections came together earlier is uncertain, but I, there, there is obviously a, you know, a, a, a tend. There is a, a motive of archi- archiving documents in in the Buddhist temples around the region. So I think this collection just comes about. As part of that archiving process,
0: and even if it hasn 't been archived, you said these stories still have wide currency in Southeast Asian culture. Is that correct?
1: Yes, because the the most the, the, the most popular ones in this collection, which is about you know fifteen or so out of the sixty sixty odd are very well known stories that exist in other forms that exist in a folk form as well and have been adapted into many different forms they've been adapted into dance into dramas into poems into uh, all kinds of, of forms so and today they get now get adapted into cartoons and television series and so on and manga comics and all kinds of other things so they're very very well known and of these sort of uh, these major stories, I mean every Thai child will will learn about them, and it' probably much the same in other parts of the region.
2: They are very important in their Thai literature of various types and uh, uh and, you know in television series in the afternoon for people who sit at home and have nothing to do and they one of their entertainment is to turn on the television and they can see um Performance, various uh, performance of uh, these stories, uh, in traditional dance form and or in the modern, uh, popular what we call litke, gay or some kind of drama period it, you know this period drama, and uh, very fantastic uh, costumes and. Uh, miracles and all sort of thing that are involved in the story. And it's very popular entertainment.
0: That's that's I think a, a particularly interesting thing. It shows you that this actually is a very important aspect of Thai culture as well.
1: Yeah. Yes. I mean for some time they were they they, they got branded as sort of non classical, non canonical, apocryphal, as if they were some sort of second rate and, and so on. Um and uh, of quite some time ago, about 30 or 40 years ago, one of the great Thai literary scholars, Danit Yuphal, he branded them as the lifeblood of Southeast Asian literature, you know, because of the way they have been adapted to so many different forms. And I think that was a turning point in, in the sort of modern history of these stories.
0: It makes me wonder which of the stories are the most well-known in Thailand. And if they're also popular in other Southeast Asian countries, or if other countries have stories that are more popular than those in Thailand, what does that look like exactly?
1: I, I think the, the the major ones uh, are, are popular across the region, but there are then several which have a, a very have become adopted in different localities. I mean, for instance, there's one which is very much associated with the great La, Laos city of Luang Prabang to the point where it was believed it was taken place there uh, and the mountains around the city are named after the characters and there's a well which is supposed to be the well that appears in the story and so on and so forth and there's probably about eight or nine of the stories in the collection which are identified in that way some way with a location and whether the story came first or the location it's impossible to tell so I think you will find in the same way, in Cambodia and Laos and Burma, probably some of these stories have this kind of local fix as well, but I, I, we don't really know about that.
0: What languages were these texts originally composed in?
1: The, mostly, as far as we can tell, they were in Bali. They were in the, the, the sacred language of Theravada Buddhism. And that is was partly in order to give them credibility, to, 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 it's, it's a stake, it's staking a claim that they are as important as the classical Jataka. And there's other ways that claim is staked. They, 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 all, they all take place in northern India, in the same place as the classical Jataka. Most of them take place in Varanasi and other towns, or towns which are named to sound like places in, in northern India. So this is part of the, staking a claim to authenticity. But they also, and some of them, and for instance, the collection in Lana is partly in Pali and partly in the local language. So I think there's, there, there's a mixture. One of the things that we discovered on doing this, because we sort of uh, felt, you know, when you see these stories exist in different Countries of the region, that they probably travelled around in Bali in in the in the, that language, and then got you know translated differently, slightly differently, in the into the different local languages, and we were then very surprised when we compared the Thai stories to the Burmese stories, and what we found was that in many cases. The, the version that has been translated into Thai and the version translated to Burmese are quite similar. They're very clearly the same story with just minor details. But when you go to look at the Pali, which exists in Burma and the one in Thai, they're completely different. So it, means, it suggests these were traveling around the region. They were shared around, not as a Pali text, but they were shared around as a story, uh, which was then written down in different ways, in different places.
0: It's interesting how the, the differences in, in language can actually tell you about the history of these uh, stories and before they were written down.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so what was your general strategy for translating these Jataka tales?
1: Well, um, we've done quite a few translations now. We, 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 we had done some modern texts. we translated some histories. and We then did this big uh, folk epic, the poet, and then I have gone off and we went off and did some of the old Thai laws and a couple of other old bits of literature. So we have now got you know, quite some experience in doing this, particularly with regard to the Thai language and to the older forms of the Thai language. I think that our strategy is, is, is two major points. The first is that obviously we, we want to be absolutely accurate. Uh, absolutely faithful to the original texts. So we don't summarize, we don't leave things out, we don't edit or anything, we we get everything in there. But the second rule is that it should be good to read. I mean, it's no good doing a translation if it doesn't feel readable for the target audience. So our our translations of all kinds of stuff uh, have been... Praised for their read- readability, um, mm. because we don't use archaic language, um, we don't, you know, try to make it academic and showy. And in the case of these stories, because they are, as it is, stories, and they are, they were originally being told and recited orally all the time. Uh, we read them out, we read them aloud all the time, and I, I read them aloud trying to imagine that uh, you're talking to, t- talking to a small audience, that you're telling the story to a small audience. So um, it, the idea is that the, the reading experience should be at least somewhat close to the experience that would have been had when people listened to these stories in, in the old days. I think those are the two most important things.
0: In a previous life, I used to work as a professional Dutch and English translator and and know firsthand how difficult it can be to translate one language faithfully to another. And these texts, I assume, are chock full of references to specific cultures, to specific ideas, places, periods, and worldviews that might not carry over into English very well. So how did you tackle this and how did you make this so accessible to the non-specialist reader?
1: You know... This, the business of sort of cult, cultural specificity was not as difficult in this project as it was, for instance, in Chang and Kunpan, where there's a norm in which, which is almost like a sort of cultural encyclopedia of Thailand. And, uh, in that case, uh, there, there's so many parts of that story that has been lost. You know, there are things that don't exist anymore that um, it's very difficult for Thai readers to read it now. And in fact, a lot of Thai readers now read our English version because it tells them stuff they can't understand in the original. But in this case, there, there was not uh, so much. And I think that is because these stories were originally designed to be didactic, to be told to a, a general audience. And because they have already been shared across boundaries, I think they have become... Uh, quite accessible, and they don't don't need uh, too, and you don't need too much uh, uh, footnoting or explanation or anything else. We we never sort of we don't use that strategy of putting explanation in the text. You know, if there's something we don't we don't do that at all. And it, it, in this case, uh, I, as you will see, we don't need very many footnotes at all. There's rather little that needs specialist explanation.
0: Hmm. And how did you select the stories that you present in your book? I uh, You previously mentioned that you you went with the most popular stories, but I'm sure that there are other popular stories that were left out of the book, uh, or at least not included in the full text. So, how did you go about making the final cut for what would appear in your book?
1: Well, I mean, it, the short answer is it's the ones we like. <laughs> 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 but it's, it, it was much more complicated. Than
2: that.
1: I mean, at least uh, if you like about 60% sort of self-selected because uh, they were uh, very well-known or obviously uh, much better. But what we wanted to do was to, as far as possible, hope that the selection would be representative of the whole. So we uh, we classify the stories into different types, um, which is, it, it, it's, 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 it's not a particularly scientific explanation. It was just seemed to be that, how the, the stories fell into different types as we read them. And then we made the point of trying to cover these various different types in, the, in, in, in this selection. When we, so getting to the cutoff at the end, when we sort of got to the sharp end of the selection, there was probably by four or five stories which we would have loved to have included in in this but in the end we had to say it, will, it the book will just get too big and we we have to be
0: we have to be ruthless in the selection in your book you present a classification system to group the various jataka tales, which you also use to divide your book into chapters so if you could i'd like to invite you to explain each of the different categories uh that you group the jataka into and also maybe present a Jonica tale that you think exemplifies this category. Is
1: that all right with you? Yes, that's fine. Just, just to start, just to start to say that what were the seven categories we used? We called them the greater quests, self-sacrifice, good works for the religion, moral tales, teaching by stories and riddles, story cycles, and complex quests. Now, actually, several of the tales you could fit parts of them into various various of those categories so it's a it's a fairly false sort of division, but this was helpful to us in trying to make this selection now, the greater quests these are mostly the stories that are are terribly well known um, all, and all all over the region um, but the one that is most uh popular in Thailand and in fact is not known throughout the region is one that is called Matasena and is often called in Thai prarot which is a sort of shortened Thai, or is called Nansipsor, which means the Twelve Sisters. This, this is a, a really rather complicated tale. And it starts when there is a rich man, who has 12 daughters. And after a time, his spending on these 12 daughters uses up all his money, and he is becoming poor. So he takes them out into the forest, and he abandons them. Okay? They, uh, then, after a few adventures, they are found sitting up in a bunion tree, and they, they exude uh, an aura of gold. And this so attracts the the local king that he marries all of them. However, he also has another wife who is an ogress, uh, a yaksa, okay? And she gets terribly jealous. And she manages to persuade the king that there's something wrong with these 12 ladies. And he gets them, he gets the king, to pluck out the eyes of all of the 12 and to lock them up in a cave. However, uh, what happens is that uh, 11 of them are already pregnant. Okay, in fact, all of them are already pregnant. And the youngest of the 12 sisters, he only plucks out one eye for some reason. So then they're locked away in the cave the 11 of them give birth, and they, they're, they're, they're so poor and they're so hungry that, in fact, they eat the children. Okay? But this, the 12th gives birth to the son, who is the Bodhisattva, is the Buddha-to-be. And he is able to get out of the cave, and he becomes the kind of savior of this group. And uh, he makes an appeal to Saka, to the god Indra, to help them out so indra first off just helps provide them with things like cloth and and food but the the young lad this is ratasena eventually he asks indra to teach him how to gamble so he'll have something to do as a living and he first then goes out and he gambles with the local cowherds and he wins all the time and he what he wins off them is food for the rest of the family but eventually because he becomes famous, he gets to go and gamble with the king, and when he is doing that, he is able to inform the king that he is actually one a son of the king. The ogress then, who is uh, uh, very devious, uh, arranges to have him sent off to the world of the ogres, and what he intends to ha- what she intends to happen is that uh, her daughter, she sends a note along telling her daughter that when he gets there will she please eat him because ogres and ogresses live off human flesh. However, there is a, there's a slippage because a rishi uh, intervenes in, in the passage, takes away the note telling the daughter to eat him and substitutes a note telling the daughter to marry him. So when he gets there, they get married and they become great lovers and so on. And she's absolutely uh, devoted to him. And he uses his time there eventually to get from the ogre world the medicine which will cure all her sisters of their blindness. It will bring back their eyes. Uh, He then gets the ogre's daughter drunk and he flees away. She chases after him, um, but uh, cannot persuade him to come back. And as a result, she dies of a broken heart. And he uh, uh, he comes back. He restores the sight of all of the 12 sisters. Uh, This is so overwhelming for the the evil ogress who caused all this problem that she also dies of a broken heart. And then the king takes them all back as his queens so as you can see it's an extraordinary story i mean it's uh, um but what what it has i mean it has this this idea of questing or you know of achieving something uh, uh, quite extraordinary but it also has this business of crossing between different worlds in this case between the human world and the world of the ogres but in Many of these quest stories, you, you, you get this kind of thing. You cross to the Naga world, you go to the Hymn of Anta Forest, you get involved with Wichatara, who are the wizards who fly through the air and are very mischievous. It's, it's a very cosmopolitan world in which these uh, Jataka stories take place.
0: What do you think is the, the didactic uh, value of the great quests?
1: It's the, the, it's the, the virtue of perseverance is... The, the, the virtue that comes through most strongly in, in all of these stories. But then there are, sub-the- there are sub-themes uh, about compass- compassion and particularly about gratitude as well, which is which strong in all of these. Um, and um, we will see this a bit later, but in many of these stories, it's particularly gratitude to a mother that, that comes through very strongly, in, in, including in this story.
0: And another uh, theme that we often see in these Jataka tales, and it's the second chapter of your book, is Um, self-sacrifice. Westerners might not be so comfortable with some of these stories because it's uh, themes of self-sacrifice that we often don't hear uh, in in some of our own uh, traditions. Um, Could you talk about this category and maybe present a a story that you think exemplifies that pretty well?
1: Yes. This is a curious category because it's well known that the the Gautama Buddha himself, you know, he, he 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 was very much against this idea of self mutilation or self sacrifice uh, and so on, but clearly uh, uh, in in later Buddhism, uh, this became this idea became quite popular, and it, it turns up in 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 several forms in various different texts, and there is in the classical Jataka, there's really only one. Major story that is on this theme But in this collection Which has far fewer stories There are many, there is about 12 12 stories Which have a a self-sacrifice theme Um, And in in A a very sort of Simple one, which is Ratana Pajota, which is the the Shining gem Uh, A woman goes out into the uh, Forest And is uh, about to be uh, Eaten by an ogre But her son uh, uh, comes forward and says, tells the ogre to to eat eat him instead. So it's substituting for. And then at the last moment, the god Indra comes down and and saves them all. But the, one of the most famous of these stories is one called Dama and this is a, a, a rather marvelous story where the king suddenly one day he he, he wants he he. he He wants to find someone to teach him the Dhamma. And for some reason, he can't find anyone. And he offers rewards. He has elephants going around his kingdom, you know, announcing that there's these rewards for someone to teach the Dhamma and no one comes forward. So eventually he he wanders off into the forest. And at this point, uh, Indra uh, decides to test him. So Indra uh, transforms himself into an ogre and comes down and stands in front of him and at this point and says and i'll, I'll, I'll read a bit here because it's really very nice he, he says your majesty i know the true Dhamma. if so please teach me now i shall do so but what will you offer me as your teacher hmm. if you first teach me the Dhamma, i will then let you eat the flesh of my body Mm, but I am very hungry and thirsty now. I want to eat your flesh first, and then I shall teach you the Dhamma. If I cannot eat your flesh first, then I cannot teach the Dhamma because I'm just too hungry. Oh, Logan, if you eat me first, who will listen to the Dhamma? <sighs> I have been without food. I'm extremely hungry and thirsty. I cannot teach you the Dhamma first. You must let me eat you first. <sighs> Understand that listening to the Dhamma is my desire. And eating my flesh is your desire. Don't spoil both benefits. The Dhamma is food for me, and my flesh is food for you. Find a way to benefit first us both. So they, they reach this compromise where the king will climb up onto the top of the mountain and jump off. And as he is falling down, the ogre will teach him the Dhamma.
0: (laughs) Brilliant compromise.
1: (laughs) It's an amazing story. Uh, But then, of course, what happens is as he jumps off the mountain and before he hits the ground, Indra catches him, you know, and and the whole story is unwound. There's also one lovely version of this, which is called the Golden Turtle. And in this, there is this massive golden turtle who lives in the sea. And he is the the Bodhisattva. And uh, uh, 500 merchants come along a ship and get shipwrecked. And he saves them all by taking them back to an island. And he's he's such a sort of compassionate thing. He feels very sorry for them being stranded. So he offers to, 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 he says to them, why don't you kill me? Uh, eat my flesh, turn my uh, shell into, into a boat and go off home. They say, oh, well, no, we can't possibly do that. We can't possibly do that. So he does it anyway. He climbs up to the top of the mountain, throws himself off, crashes down the bottom. Um, his shell doesn't break. He dies, but his shell doesn't break. So they, they eat his flesh and they paddle his shell back to 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 their, to their home port. And then in the last final lovely touch, they set up this massive golden shell as a monument to his compassion. It's a very nice ending.
0: Indra often appears in these stories. Uh, what role does Indra play in these stories, and, and what does that reflect?
1: Well, he, he plays th- this very helpful god character who is, if you like, a kind of patron uh, deity of the bodhisattva whichever, whichever bodhisattva there is. So what happens at points in all of these stories is that when the Bodhita is in trouble in some way, the seat, the throne on which Indra sits, suddenly becomes hot. And when that happens, he knows there's a problem. So he uses his magical sight to peer down into the world and to find out what is wrong. And then he acts upon this move. and this, this can mean coming down in these forms you know, to, to act as the tester in, in these stories. But often it means you know sending down one of his, his, his driver or his architect or his engineer to sort things out for the Bodhisattva in, in, in the real world. I, I, you know, it's, this Indra has somehow been adopted into Thai, particularly Thai Theravada Buddhism, as this sort of very helpful and um, compassionate god figure. To the point, I think, um, most uh, Thai would, do not, would, would not recognize Indra being a Hindu god. It's part of Buddhism.
2: I think also the, the implicit in this is the idea if you are good, person, very good person, and uh, you are having an aim in life to help others, then uh, God will help you, you know, it's kind of (laughs) Um, extraterritorial being uh, beyond the human world would uh, have an eye, an ear for anyone who is good. to help you, so it it's kind of give you the the uh, the confidence and the uh, uh, the uh, the courage, you know, to continue to be to, to be good and to pursue. This Nirvana.
0: I also wonder as well if, if it plays a certain humanizing role or helps the, the listener relate to the stories because even this superhuman being, the, the Buddha in his previous lives as a bodhisattva, still needs help at times from Indra.
1: Yes, I, I think you're absolutely yeah, right. You're right. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and Indra
0: is, is, is a very folksy god. The self-sacrifice category also carries us into the next category, the third category called good works for the religion uh, because often this also has a, a, a sacrifice element in the story uh, could you walk us through this category please
1: yes I mean some of them have a sacrifice element but um, many of many of them don't they are encouraging people to 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 sponsor and patronize Buddhism in one way or another and I'll just give you an example of one of the, the ones that I like a lot, which is called Watanguli, which means the well formed finger. And what happens is that uh, there's a man who is traveling one day deep through a forest and he comes across a Buddha image which has a broken finger. And he's so upset by this, he takes time to repair the finger using clay and sugar juice. So it's a very simple repair job. Right? And when he is reborn in his next life. He becomes a king and he is the Bodhisattva. And he is such a good and nice king and so compassionate that his neighbors think he's going to be a pushover. So they attack his realm, intending to take it over. And there's a sort of classic Buddha, Buddha battle scene, such as you find in, in, in stories of this era. But then what happens, and I'll read this bit because it's lovely, is King Watanguli, the Bodhisattva, raised a finger and pointed straight at the enemy troops. Immediately, the 101 lords fell off their elephants. All the elephant troops fell off the necks of their mounts. The horsemen fell from their saddles and the charioteers from their seats. The foot soldiers collapsed all over the place. Then all of them fled away with their cloth slipping from their bodies. So it's a lovely idea that just from this one simple act of repairing a, a statue, an image you found in the middle of nowhere with just a broken finger, that you will get such a reward. And at the end of the story, uh, in, in the verses, there's, there's a very nice summing up of the exact nature of rewards. It goes like this. Anyone who creates a Buddha image will become Indra, king of the gods in seven lives and then an emperor in 80 or 100 lives, and then a king in countless lives. Anyone who devoutly restores an imperfect Buddha image using only clay, the beneficial result is enormous. You will be reborn in the heavens every time for eternity. And it goes on and on like this, specifying rewards. I mean, I think that these stories, and there are other ones which are like this, which are about the rewards for giving cloth to monks, for giving food to monks in the morning, and a very elaborate one uh, about the rewards for sponsoring the reproduction of manuscripts. I mean, what you get for supplying the paper, the ink, the wooden bookends, the candle that's used while it's being copied, and so on uh, and so forth. And I, I suspect this these date from the period when Theravada Buddhism was still trying to sort of get a grip, and you needed to encourage the, the sponsorship The So a lot of these stories were were developed at at
0: this time. I never thought about that, actually, when I was reading some of these, Yeah, but I guess that makes sense because you have to have a way to show followers or potential followers that not only is it rewarding for the perpetuation of the religion, but you also will gain a lot of merit from this act as well.
1: Yes, I I think what's what's really special about Theravada Buddhism is that although it does to some extent rely upon the sponsorship of kings it crucially depends upon the sponsorship of the community support
0: from the community
1: and I think that had to be encouraged in various ways
0: Now the, the next section we have is called moral tales
1: Yes, this in some ways is a residual category in our tradition these look to be stories which probably just developed initially as a sermon so they have a little t- tale followed by a moral, and often they they are very very simple tales, and they are particularly about things like uh, associating with good people and not associating with bad people, and they are also particularly about taking good decisions without being uh, prey to jealousy or anger or or, or the the usual things which deflect people from good decisions. One of the more elaborate and one of uh, the nicer ones is one called Dukkha And this is about a man, his father tells him, the quote, he tells him, if a woman has had three husbands, do not take her as wife. If a man has been ordained and disrobed three times, do not take him as a friend. If a king acts carelessly without studying matters, do not associate with him at all costs. However, our our man, who is the Bodhisattva, decides he is going to test out this theory. So he does marry a woman who has had three husbands. He does take as a friend someone who has been ordained and disrobed three times. And then to test them out, he steals a, a swan, a bird that belongs to the king. And pretends that he's cooked it and e- e- eaten it, and he then finds out that his wife rats on him uh, partly because she wants the reward from the king, partly because she wants to run off with another man. his friend rather than helping him encourages him to go off to jail so that he can have his clothes right and then the king uh, uh, instead of investigating. The case properly summarily condemns him to execution. There's then a, a kind of a sort of shaggy dog tale in, in which the the uh, the gatekeepers at the four gates of the city will not allow him to be taken out to be to be executed for various reasons. So he then eventually comes back to the king, and he explains to the king. Actually, you actually, you can get. You can get your swan back. I've still got it. It's buried in in a hole over there. And the king says, oh, that's wonderful, marvellous. And I must reward you for being such an an honest man. And he comes back and says, no, I'm leaving this city. Well, just as my father told me, you shouldn't stay in a place where a king cannot have good judgment. So he goes off to the next city where they find him and make him into the king. So I mean, it's it's a it's a lovely, um, it's, it's a absolutely wonderful. lovely uh, a little dramatization of a very simple point.
0: We come to my favorite section, actually, uh, the teaching by stories and riddles. I thought this is a particularly interesting uh, chapter um, in in the book. What is this category about?
1: Well, the, the the two the two are actually very mixed together, and I think we'll <clears throat> we'll swap around the order here. I think <clears throat> because um, the these are stories, and there are a lot of stories within stories in in this collection. In fact, uh, one of them, Suraba, has is really just a collection of about forty little stories strung together with different frame stories uh, to put them together. Um, and these are little each of them is a little moral tale on its own. Uh, as part of several of these tales, there's this business of question and answer and questions which are, are, le- are really riddles to me. And the answers to these riddles um, are, 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 are just allow the Bodhisattva to give you know, very simple, basic uh, teaching of of Buddhist morals and, and just sort of Buddhist facts and figures, if you like. Uh, in one of these, for, for, for instance, which is called Bandagara the treasurer, uh, the frame story is not so important, but the middle part of it is, is that Indra comes down and tell, and puts to the king a series of questions, which are very simple. They are, uh, what is one but not two? What is two but not three? What is three but not four? And he it says, if you can't answer these within seven years and so on, I, I will come back and and smash your head to pieces with a hammer. So the king gets very upset, and eventually he has to call on the bodhisattva who is a seven-year-old boy who is actually his son, who he has rejected for for various strange reasons. Um, and of course, the young bodhisattva is able to answer these questions, and the answers are, are just just like a refresher course in Buddhism. So, you know, you know what is for the, what is the number three? Where well, it's the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. What is four? It's the four continents of of the Buddhist cosmology. What is five? It's the five pre- precepts. So it's just a framework for for, for giving a uh, uh, for giving a sort of little refresher course in in sort of basic Buddhism. But probably more interesting, and Parshu will, will come, is some of these stories, which are stories within stories, mm. um, and which have. Uh, a, a rather bigger meaning on top of it. So, also, will talk about Sapa
2: which is lovely. This is a tale with riddles called Sapa probably coming from India. The plot is this. A king has such a beautiful daughter that crowds of princes vie for her hand. He sets a test. They can each, in turn, talk to her through the night and the winner will be the first one to get her to say something in response. All fail. The Bodhisattva has learned how to take out a person's heart and put it back. He talks to the heart of the courtier, allowing the princess to overhear. He asks the heart to answer a series of riddles about love and compatibility. Each time the heart answers, the princess disagrees with the answer and offers her own. They come near to dawn. So come the last question. He asks the courtier's heart, Oh, courtier! There once was a beautiful woman with a slender figure and very fine hair. She was very attractive. Everybody liked her. Now, which feels softer, kapok or a woman? The courtier's heart replied, Kapok feels softer than a woman, sigh. Hearing this, the princess said, Oh courtier, you were wrong. A husband who has a soft heart without any hardness feels softer than either k or a woman. Hearing the princess speak, the king's officials played loud music. This was the fourth time. So the potisata and the princess are married.
0: I think that's a, a very, uh, very interesting way to show that, yeah, tenderness and, and emotions are very important in human relationships and also romantic relationships, um, and I think this is a story that also shows the um, the breadth of the lessons taught. Um, in traditional Theravada Buddhism, that we sometimes don't get in the West, uh, is such a strong emphasis on meditation and 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 soteriology that we kind of forget that actually, um, these very nice lessons are part of the religion as well.
1: Yes, I think I think what you said is absolutely correct, and that the 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 Western adoption of Buddhism was fascinated by its intellectual side. But its enormous success in Southeast Asia and elsewhere came about by becoming so deeply Im- embedded in the society. I mean, uh, we when we were writing about the history of Ayutthaya, we have a long section on this about just how important. the the Buddhist temple was. I mean, they weren't only providing religious services. They were the doctors. uh, They were the school teachers. They organized the festivals. They gave you the magic. They did the prediction. They did the horoscopes and so on and so forth. And they were involved very deeply in the everyday life of the mass of the people. And, And I think you're right. This very much comes through in this co- collection, where the stories are very human. And, and in fact, if you compare it to the canonical category, I think in th- that this is an aspect that is different. A lot of the canonical ones are rather formal, where very few of these are formal. They tend
0: to be very warm and human. OK, so then we come to a category, story cycles, another interesting category.
1: Yes, I mean, the, 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 there's really uh, only one in here, which is one I, I just mentioned, which is sort and it, it's a, just a story of a bodhisattva who, who, who is going to, he's going off to be an ascetic, and he's he's going to go off to the to the Himavanta forest, and along the way, he has a, a series of encounters with different people where he gets uh, called upon particularly to be a judge in little local disputes Um, and and often judges in cases where there are two people trying to trick one another. So it's about how you make decisions in disputes, how you judge evidence and and so on and so on and so forth. Um, And uh, it's, it's very interesting that it's also this story has adopted Some of the component stories have have come from elsewhere. So right in the middle, there's a a part which comes straight out of the Arabian thousand and one nights, because it's a story of a very evil king who who keeps um, marrying women and then killing them. So there is this dancing girl who has to go to spend the night with the king. And she defends herself just in the Thousand and One Nights by telling stories all through the night and keeping the king totally entranced to, to the result that she is saved and becomes the queen in the morning, which is very delightful.
0: And then we come to the last of the categories, which actually is connected to uh, the first category, the greater quest. And this category is called Complex Quests what is this category about and how does it differ from the first category of the greater quests
1: okay these um most of these stories and they appear towards the end of the collection and they mostly only appear in the thai collection they're not ones which were passed around um they they are long and, and and rambling tales and they often use elements which come from the greater quests, right, or come from of the famous Jataka tales, particularly the Great Ten, the, the, the last ten Jataka tales. And they are very, very complex stories. They particularly start off when a, a, either a, a queen or the queen's sons are somehow banished from the court uh, because of the machinations of an evil queen or the machinations of an evil brahmin, they then go on a series of adventures, uh, and these adventures take them to the naga world, the Himavanta forest, uh, to encounters with yak. They They acquire all kinds of magical articles, particularly swords which they can hold and fly up into the air or shoes that they do the same thing or walking sticks which pointed one way will kill someone and pointed the other way will bring people back to life. They get befriended, particularly by Naga. Um, They often have a companion who is a horse um, and uh, in several of them, uh, one of the characters acquires lots of wives. I mean, one of the women he he acquires six, including a Naga wife, a a, a Yaka wife, a Kumpanda (laughs) wife, and and all all, all sorts of other things. And all through these stories, the sort of crucial points, you also have shipwrecks and all kinds of other things. Uh, um, At some points in the story, suddenly the, the Bodhisattva hero will suddenly think of his mother. And he, he, he when, when he's, this is usually when he's luxuriating with a new wife or he's just become been made king of a new city. He suddenly has this terrible conscience and he thinks of his mother and he has to set off to find his mother. And, and usually at the end of this tales, there's quite often then a big battle. And this battle is quite often full of magic it's it's a supernatural kind of battle using spirits and all kinds of other things and then finally at the end there's usually a reconciliation scene so that those people who've been banished somehow get back home and uh uh, the king who banished them realizes that he's been fooled and the evil queen or the evil brahmin is either forgiven or punished and then uh, sort of life goes on um the, the, these are fascinating stories. And, and uh, some scholars, particularly Justin McDaniel, has, has noted that these obviously came about from a, a culture of reproducing these kinds of stories within the Buddhist temples of the region, You know, constantly writing and rewriting these stories. But we don't have any sort of direct evidence of quite how this went about. Only a couple of them, are, are are famous and, and some of them are just too over the top for words but i i i was thinking when reading these you know they're not actually that different from superhero films or star wars they're rather the same you know and they they're just full of quite extraordinary scenes of, of of battles and adventures and and strange places and, and so on you know and very very like i think superhero films and that's they probably have the same kind of appeal as those films
0: i just wanted to ask you about uh the original document that you translated which i believe was the national uh, thailand national library collection is there any sort of um systematization or order that these uh stories appear in or
1: there's obviously some systematization because the ordering of many of the stories are the same in the various collections that are found around the region, but ordering of some of them are not. I believe that Prince Dumrong, when he put the collection together and had some kind of list, and I, I've seen references to this list, but I you know, have not been able to locate this list in, in, in any way at, at all. Um, the, 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 one of the superb things that happened well, uh, was that the, the, one of the, the government banks here, here, the government savings bank, produced this marvelous addition uh, back in 2013, which includes not only uh, the Thai versions of these, uh, but also the, the Bali versions which, from which the translations were made. And because halfway through this project, I got very worried that you know that doing a translation of a translation is a bad thing, and there was there was a kind of risk that we would translate the Thai and it wouldn't be true to the original Bali. So I spent a, a year teaching myself Bali in order to be able to read these originals. I didn't learn it you know, well enough to be an expert, but I read it, I learned it well enough to be able to read both the Thai and the Bali and make sure that the translation from Bali to Thai was, 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 was faithful. And in fact, it is. There's, only, there's certain sort of slippages, but you know, it's, it's kind of a, a 99.5% good job, so it's perfectly adequate.
0: So no major, uh, no major differences, and at least in the qualitative content of the stories?
1: No. The, 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 the only one is the, 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 the quest story I, I described earlier, Ratasen, created a lot of trouble for, for the translator. So that's the only one where there's much var- variation.
0: Mm, okay. And I'd like to close this discussion with a, an interesting question for you both. Uh, is there a story that's a personal favorite of yours? And why is that?
2: Uh, one, one of my favorites, actually the, uh, the one that I recited was also my favorite. And this is another one. Uh, this is the tale of Prince Pachita. The tale came partly from local legend and may be mixed with some bits of stories from the Arabian Thousand and One Nights. The Potisatta is Prince Pajita as Potisatta, who refuses all arranged marriage and seeks his own partner, Arabimba. They are separated, prompting a long quest but reunited in the end. This is the plot. Arapimba is such a prominent character that it makes Potisata rather passive by comparison. So I found it fascinating from a, a woman's perspective. It's so beautiful. He, he waits 16 years for her to grow up to marry her. When she is abducted by an e- evil prince, she fights off his attempt at rape, gets him drunk, then kills him with his own sword. When an evil hunter kills her husband and tries to assault her, she kills him with his own sword and revives her husband with some magic medicine given to her by the Saka. When the couple are again separated, And she sets off to search for him. She makes a prayer to change herself into a man. She is then ordained as a monk and rises to be the patriarch, the head of the monkhood in a city state. She finally met her husband and reverses out the sex change. It is quite amazing and not in the Jataka version, but in the folk tale where uh, some of this story comes in. When she changed into a man, she takes off her breasts and her sex and hangs each on separate trees. So there are in Thailand trees called maiden breast tree and... Vagina tree until today.
1: Probably from this story.
2: Probably from this story. It is fascinating how this tale gives so much prominent role to a woman. It is probable that the majority of the audience for sermons is women. So perhaps the tale was developed to appeal to this audience.
1: I, I think one of the other favourites of ours is Sutana or Suton Manura, as it's known in Thai. The one which we translate first, uh, and, and this is one of the most famous stories all around the region. I'll just briefly do the plot and just read a little little section of it. It starts when there uh, a group of Ginari, which who are bird-human sort of hybrids and paragons of beauty they come down and bathe in a pond in this world and one of them which is Manura is captured by a hunter and she's so beautiful Hunter thinks he, he's, she's too good for him so she he presents her to his prince the prince of the state and they get married and they love one another very much indeed The prince of course is the bodhisattva but then the evil brahmin who who wants to who wants to get rid of this prince because he feels that this prince will threaten his job plots to get rid of manuraya as a way to ruin the prince and uh, she is going to be executed and in order uh, just to prevent her being executed she has to flee away and at that point her, her her mother-in-law gives her back her wings and tail her bird wings and tail allowing her to flee away and, and that point in the story has created a, a lovely dance in which she dances to thank her mother-in-law which is what you see all around the region but then um what is uh, the bit I'm going to read is, which is we think is just lovely, is before she goes, she's, she says to a rishi, to an ascetic, you know, if my husband tries to follow me, uh, tell him he can't possibly go because the, the way is not a way for humans. He won't make it. But just in case he's still going to try, this is what you have to tell him, he says. When he has traveled far beyond the realm of humans, he will arrive first at a forest, where the trees have poison, he should capture a young monkey which can taste the fruit before he eats any. Next, he will come to a great rattan forest. He should wrap this piece of red woollen cloth tightly around his body and lie down quick, quietly on the ground. A great bird looking for food will think he is the meat of a hog, door, hog deer and will swoop down, grasp him in his talons and carry him beyond the rattan forest. When the bird reaches his nest in a huge tree, he should clap his hands and the bird will flee in fight, flight. After that, he will come to a great upland forest where he will meet a great ogre as tall as seven sugar palm trees looming over the heart of the forest. He must sprinkle some powder on an arrow and shoot at the chest of the great ogre who will fall down and he will have to walk over his head. A hundred yojana further, he will come to another river where the python with a huge long body will lie stretched across the river from bank to bank like a bridge. He should sprinkle this powder on the soles of his feet and walk across on the back of the snake. At the opposite bank, he must quickly jump over the snake's head. And it it goes on and on like this for for some time. And of course, the Bodhisattva does follow after her And he takes seven years, seven months, and seven days. And, of course, he does find her. And when he gets there, and she's gone back to the land of the Kinari, which is on Mount Kailash, her father sets a test for him, which includes an archery contest, which, of course, turns up in these kinds of myths all over the world. And then the last moment, is the last test, the, the father dresses her and all her sisters up to look alike and then says, can you identify her? And Indra again comes down to help and whispers and says, I'm going to turn myself into a golden fly and I will settle on your wife so you know which one she is. And, of course, everyone, uh, everyone uh, becomes happy every, ever after. This is a very old tale. I mean, it goes back to into India in, in the early, you know, to around 2000 years ago. And it reached Southeast Asia by at least the 8th or ninth century because there's a wonderful set of bas reliefs on the Borobudur Temple in in Java. And then it has become this marvellous story in in this set of Jataka and I think uh, certainly our favourite.
2: Yes, it's also my (laughs) favourite.
0: Well, thank you so much again for, for coming on the podcast and, and really taking the time to, uh, to explain uh, your new book, uh, From the 50 Jataka, Selections from the Thai Panyasa Jataka, and really giving such an interesting and rich and, and, and textured presentation of these tells uh, for our listeners today. Um, I'd like to ask you what projects you're currently working on or any projects you have planned for the future.
1: Oh, first Alex, thank you very much for the opportunity. to, yes, to thank to you do so this, much, which
0: has been enormous.
1: Um, we have we are, we have a, a translation which should be out in a couple of months, which is of two old love poems from from Thai, which both date back uh, about five hundred years to around fifteen hundred. One of it is a very famous poet Lilipralor, which is a kind of romantic a tragedy, um, rather like, and and very dramatic. It's rather like a play. Romeo and Juliet. uh, In a bit Romeo and Juliet-like. And that's rather well-known. But the other one is almost, used to be terribly well-known, but has been very much suppressed over the last century. And that's called Tauatotsamad, or 12 Months. And and that, we think, is an absolutely stunning uh, piece. It's a sort of lament over
0: a lost love. And which publisher will this be published with?
1: This will come out through Silkworm,
0: and um, we have been Silkworm,
1: yes, and Silkworm uh, they they tie up with the University of Washington Press in the U.S. Oh right, um, and we work with Silkworm, which is in Chiang Mai. We've worked with them now for a, a long, long time, and they're, we're very close friends. And they're, they're they're
0: exceptionally, we think, exceptionally good publisher. And also the publisher of your the current book being discussed from the Fifty Jataka as well.
1: Yes. That's also from from Silkwood, yeah.
0: Wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much. Uh, It's been truly a pleasure to have you both on.
1: A pleasure for us.
2: A pleasure pleasure for us. us.
0: You've been listening to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. If you're interested in learning about other New Books and Buddhist Studies, head over to newbooksnetwork.com or search for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts. Audio used with permission from Musique Delicieuse and is taken from the song Small Flowered by Para Fercuva.